Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Describing the decision as the biggest regret of his career, in 1997, Ken Arthurson reflected that the arrival of the Broncos into the competition brought new elements of unease, discontent, secret corporate ambition, and ultimately, wicked treachery. He would also claim that the seeds of Super League were sown the moment the decision to allow Brisbane into the New South Wales Rugby League was made. Of this second point, there can be no refuting. Right from the start, the relationship between the Broncos and the league was an ill-fitting marriage of convenience, which saw two diametrically opposed philosophies come into frequent and damaging contact. For six years, these tensions simmered, before inevitably and irrevocably boiling over in 1994. A series of broadsides fired on the field, in the press, and in the boardroom regularly hit their mark as the battle grew increasingly ugly and ever more public. By this stage, the Bronco had already bolted, and the war which would permanently alter rugby league across the world was underway. This is Aren't You Blokes Interested in Finance, Chapter 3 in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Very well, mates. Uh, so we, we've spent a lot of time looking at the the prelude to Super League in terms of the 20 or so years before. Uh, in, in this chapter, we're, we're getting almost right at the heart of the matter. Our prelude's lasted 20 years, <laughs> but it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And, and the same with this episode. It, it's a lot of setup. You're not really going to hear much about actual Super League in this chapter, but we're getting very close, I promise you. Plenty of Rebo talk. Yeah, exa- yeah there, there definitely will be. So this is really an episode in two parts. So the second half will be a look at the Broncos in particular and the permutations in the years preceding 1995, which created Super League and some of those early rumblings. Uh, first, though, we're going to look at the rugby league landscape once again, but this time specifically in the mid-90s, and, and look at some of the forces involved that led to the creation of Super League. Uh, some from within, some from without. And I'm going to start with the latter, just a general look at the sporting landscape. And 1994 is a very particular point in time in terms of the US influence on Australian sports. Very different time. Me reading Inside Sport in front of Sports Sunday, going out to shoot a few hoops, you know. But the difference is it was, for the first time, it was just a real threat. Like, I think US sports now coexist pretty peacefully with Australian sports. So NBA, NFL, you know, English soccer as well. They're just part of the sporting landscape. Yeah, I think you can have both now. Yeah. Back then, it was sort of like one or the other. Yeah, exactly. And and it, it was viewed as a real threat. Basketball in particular, which we've talked about on the show before but in 1994 this was causing real existential angst 
among uh, rugby league power brokers. Well, I mean, I played basketball. I was a Newcastle Falcons fan. I used to go to the games and all that sort of business. But I was also a massive rugby league fan. I, I mean, I didn't find any problem doing both, but I knew idiots that said, I'm only watching NBL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> uh, one of the funniest lines I read that made me think about where we were then and when we are now, uh, lawyer Brendan Schwab was talking about the salary cap system and, and the way the league was run. And he said, you don't find this sort of thing going on in the NBL. <laughs> Their times have changed. They haven't even got salaries now, let alone a cap. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing is as well, when you think about that, uh, and and basketball played out throughout the Super League war as well. You had you know a, a piece in 95 when Graham Richardson and John Rebo were both talking about basketball as a threat. It was about the only thing they agreed on. It's so funny how little talk of a threat from any other Australian sport came was being discussed. Insane. Like the the AFL rugby union, they were just not viewed as a threat at all. That's funny in itself, but then it was funny how quickly that changed. Well, this was when when Swans were whipping boys still, so they were considered a joke, right? Union, I don't know how they didn't see that coming. Like not by ninety nine, they were challenging us. Yeah, and if Joey had gone. God, who knows what would have happened. Thank God two of those sports are now hobbies <laughs> in Australia. And AFL is the only issue. Uh, so th- there was, as I said, I mentioned that term existential angst. There was a lot of discussion about rugby league's future viewed in an American context that, you know, they're putting down their Stevens and picking up a Wilson. You know, <laughs> it was viewed that we were going to lose the next generation of rugby league players to the NBA or, you know, the NBL more likely. Uh, but the other thing was an actual influence in terms of people involved in the game looking at the way US sports was run, looking at some of the machinations there and seeing seeing that outlook for Australia. So 1994 was a pretty pivotal year in terms of US um, industrial relations with the, the NHL and the Major League Baseball both having, you know, lockouts, shortened seasons. That really affected me. I was a baseball fan, played baseball as a kid as well. And it's like, I was panicked that was going to happen in Australia. I thought mm. it was just disgusting yeah. that they could like strike. And John Rebo's quote about that system is quite telling. Quite simply, the situation is just not equitable. Players whose livelihood is from their clubs are being paid a pittance to represent the governing body. There are some revolutionary issues in the game of rugby league being discussed at the moment. Maybe this one should go on the agenda as well. See, what I was thinking was like they're getting millions of dollars in the baseball and they're striking. Like, how dare they? But in, in rugby league, they actually deserve to strike. Yeah. I was really worried about it. <laughs> uh, and there was talk of an initial step of boycotting the, the World Sevens in 95, you know, which I, I know it's, it's the World Sevens, but just as a, a show of force and saying yeah. we're serious about this. I think they should have. Well, well it's funny. There's a few points in this story, in this chapter in particular, where we can see a potential other path for how it all might have gone down. And yeah. that, that was certainly something that was in the air. You've got to admire the players for not striking, really, because like, the players do respect the fans at the end of the day. I think it had more to do with the sophistication of Australian sport at that point. Like, I don't think the Players Association was in a strong enough position. I don't think the players themselves had a long enough history of professionalism to see it as a way yeah, out. Yeah, agreed. But I mean, at that point especially, they weren't the sort of blokes to go, you know what, let's just stuff the fans. Yeah. <laughs> so the other the big external force casting a shadow was the, the looming Olympic Games. Uh, so Sydney were, were announced as the host 
of the 2000 Olympics in, I can't remember if it was 93 and 93, 94, I believe. 93. Friend of the show, Juan Antonio Samaran. <laughs> Uh, Jumpin' John Fay. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I don't know what the vibe was in Newcastle at the time, but certainly from basically the moment the Olympics was announced in Sydney, everything seemed to get framed around it. Like any kind of transport project, you'd see like an Olympic thing, and like there was endless reams of paper about this is going to cost this much, and we're going to do this with this. And we certainly heard about it, but it wasn't on the tip of our tongues. We're worried about the uh, the steelworks closing and yeah. that sort of business. Get in and the big thing in rugby league terms was the new Olympic Stadium, which was viewed as the the future home of rugby league. And the league itself made a bid to actually own that stadium, and in partnership with some developers, actually put in a submission to to take on the the running of the stadium. It's like they saw a future, like of. 8,000 people in this, this 80,000 stadium. <laughs> well, well, funnily enough, Norm Tasker, when, when all this was going on, he had a piece talking about the new stadium and, and the future of rugby league it provided. I'll, I'll just read this. The big days at Homebush will be real occasions and the ordinary days in which as many as four Sydney clubs could be sharing the new venue will provide new levels of comfort and prestige. There seems no limit to what the game can achieve in the next dozen years or so if we all keep our heads. There is a learning curve here for everybody. A message to put the petty squabbles aside and get on with the job of pitching the game at the very heights of international standards. It is indeed a significant point in the history of the game. How many times can you be wrong in one paragraph? <laughs> I've got to say, at that time, I was so excited by that line of thinking and I thought it was going to happen. I thought, you know what, we're finally going to make it. We're going yeah. to have this full stadium. And we see with Melbourne, with Eddie had. It does happen yeah. <laughs> in sports where people attend the games. Right? Yeah. So I, I, I respect that sentiment. It's just we didn't come through. No, and and, and part of that is, is not really the league's fault. Like even in the mid-90s when the stadium was being discussed, it was talked about of going rectangular basically as soon as the <laughs> Olympics were over. I mean, 20 years on, we're still not there yet. <laughs> but again, everything in rugby league at this point there was the looming threat of rationalisation and less Sydney clubs. And this even came into play with that Olympic Stadium. Part of that future was the idea that all Sydney clubs would be playing out of Homebush, but it was viewed that there would be, you know, four or six, you know. So it, it was definitely being talked about. And just to intro this section of the podcast, I know this might be getting a bit boring from, for the listeners at this point, but this is basically the last time we'll really discuss Sydney rationalisation until the you know the reunification of the two leagues in 1998, and this is very much a different manifestation uh, from of uh, merging or folding Sydney clubs than what we've been talking about previously. It's funny, I and mean, we'll get to it at the end of the series. But I mean, the ease that we rationalised at the end of the war yeah. <laughs> compared to the, the tooth and nail fight for yeah. every possible rationalisation yeah. before the war, uh, and in chalk and cheese, the, the first thing we said in the the start of this season proper when we brought up the Kevin Humphreys quote from the 70s. It's almost comical how many at how many points in the history of rugby league for nearly 50 years the rationalisation of Sydney clubs has been talked about <laughs> with, with very little action along the way. And I, I've been weighing this up because for me that kind of, that buries the traditionalist argument that, you know, it's tribal, it's, you, you know, you, it's this is the way it's always been. But the traditionalist might come out and say, well, the fact is we've been talking about it for 50 years and we're still here. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Again, I'm going to read out a John Rebo quote just to uh, you know, give this a frame. 
I admire the Balmains and those foundation clubs, but it had come to the point that someone had to look at rugby league, not just at the clubs. The game is bigger than that. It's all right for people to say there's emotion out there. Well, I get as emotional as anyone about the game, but you've got to run it as a business and the business principles have to be very strong. If that's not the case, you don't survive. And that's kind of the dominant theme of this chapter is the clash between business ideals and pure rugby league. Let me ask you this. We spoke last week about how he was the ideal guy, ex-player, test player, respected player, smart guy, um, rugby league man. He had all the credentials to be the guy to, to do this. But do you think it actually worked against him and they're like, he's an ex-player and he's acting like a big shot? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think there's, there's definitely something to that and we're going to spend the back half of this episode discussing that at length. But what, what you see with Rebo that he was so competent, like during this period, just in researching this episode where I'm getting all these quotes from him, I'm staggered at the the amount of body blows he was consistently delivering on the ARL with yeah. these concise, like to the bone, like little quotes that just basically sum up the whole situation. But this is my beef at the time is he was made out to be a, this giant scapegoat and, and, and an evil person, but he's just a rational person. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, so when we talk about his role at the Broncos and then, you know, butting heads with the league, he was doing that because he was there in his role of, you know, doing the best for the Broncos. Like, I think if he was actually in charge of the league and had 16 clubs or 20 clubs or whatever it would have been to look after, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have been a very, very capable administrator of the game as a whole. Agreed. But, but as I said, this conflict between rugby league and business comes up again and again over the course of this episode and beyond. And it was definitely something that was used as kind of a promotional ploy by some of the, the people on the ARL side, you know, like, you know, oh, it's just about the Super League. It's just about money. It's just about business. And it's, well, if you're wanting to run your game as a business, which the ARL did want to do, if you're taking these steps to get professionalism, get corporate interest, get financial success, well, you need to be measured against those terms, don't you? Or just use some quotes from a television ad in your financial reports at the end of the year and move on after you. And, and just to, to sum this up, sum this all up, in Paul Sirenin's book when he was talking about uh, Glenn Lazarus actually uh, was, was being interviewed about, you know, the future of the game and, and he said something like, oh, you know, we have to play all these nothing games against Balmain and the Gold Coast every two weeks, uh, either not realising or not caring that Ciro was in the room with him. Uh, and... Um, you know, so Paul Sirenin said, I will stress that we were operating on a skinny $2 million budget compared to the Broncos' fat $6 million. But crikey, we were a foundation club. The Tigers were there in 1908. Um, this, like, we're a foundation club argument, like, it's brought up so often by, you know, fans and, you know, administrators of foundation clubs as if, like, the fact that you were there first gives you this eternal right to be there. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Like, you know, decades of poor performance on and off field can be excused by the fact that you just happened to be there in 1908. The funny thing is it always worked. Yeah. <laughs> but it still works now. It's like, um, like, 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 why do we have East and South? Well, East is a foundation. <laughs> and uh, like, I, I actually hate talking about rugby league this way, the business of it and, you know, that having to do, you know, like it, it's not my politics. It's not my outlook on life. But the fact is, if you put yourself in this position, then it has to be discussed on these terms. And, it would be intellectually dishonest to not think about it in these terms. Well, this is the reason why we have the war. I mean, old versus new. Yeah. 
And if sentiment is your only argument, well, it's not really much of an argument. You know, Ford's not making Model Ts anymore. Well, it, I'll tell you what happens when you have the sentiment argument. You have Sydney Club Rugby. Yeah. That's what you have. Mm. You have a bunch of rich benefactors propping up the rats. Mm. We don't want that. No. Uh, so there were a, a couple of Sydney clubs in trouble at this point in time. Uh, so Cronulla was one of them. And Arthur Bateson was coaching Cronulla at the time. And his book paints a pretty grim picture of what it was like to be a coach of one of the the have-nots in rugby league at this point, where the gulf between the, the top teams and the one struggling was... Um, you know, a chasm. And, and I think that's something that has gone has gone some way to closing, but you're still seeing that gap. You saw like Braith and Asta talking about the difference of playing at the Roosters than going to the Tigers a couple of years ago, having yeah. to pay for his own power aid. <laughs> I always love the petty the pettiness of the comparisons, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but Arthur Beetson at the time was, you know, watching the Broncos reserve grade and see like players on their bench that he wanted for his run on first grade side see this is my argument about the rose colored uh, glasses argument of the the old comp it was an absolute haves and haves nots mm. and this, as much as the salary cap is derided for being unenforceable in the modern game look, look what we have now compared to what we had every team's got a chance to win every week yeah you couldn't uh, say that back then no uh and i'll just i'll just read this quote in full uh i'll, I'll save any comment on it for the end uh Tommy Radonikus and his right-hand man, the clean-cut Wayne Ellis, spent their Christmas turning four run-down squash courts into a gymnasium where Wes could do their weight training. The pair decided to do it themselves because if they hired builders, it would have cost the club $13,000. That was about $12,800 more than Wes had to do the job. We bludged favours here and there, and Wayne and I did the whole job for 200 bucks. Jackhammers and all, boasted Tommy. We knocked down four walls and fixed up the place. See that crack there? We put that support up and bolted it to the wall. <laughs> it's so cool. It, it's so cool. Like, and that's why on a personal level, that's why everyone loves Tommy Radonikus. Like he's a walking anachronism. But at an institutional level, it's like, you know, disgraceful. And even 19, in 1994, like it's crazy that these stories were being reported seriously as if it was acceptable. Um, that might be the reason we had the Builders Home Warranty uh, scheme as well. <laughs> that support there doesn't support anything. But uh, yeah, it's hilarious. And again, like we hope we're well past that now, but you've still got Trent Barrett bringing his own garden chairs in. Yeah, look, we're not past it. Uh, so this goes back to the theme of, of the writing on the wall, and in this case, the wall that was built by Tommy Rodonicus himself. <laughs> well, let's just go back to that like. We have the figure of 13,000, which means they have 10 quotes <laughs> in a direct figure. <laughs> so this, this amalgamation talk was inescapable even before Super League. So in one Rugby League Week article in 1994, uh, I'll just read this quote. Almost all chief executives acknowledged that a streamlined competition was inevitable and felt it may be in place by as early as 1996. But when you actually see the quotes of each of the chief executives it, it's like the analogy of like the, the sergeant talking to his troops at the war and going you know man 100 of you going over the wall 99 of you aren't coming back and they all look around and think those poor bastards <laughs> how apt is that analogy <laughs> you know so you had quotes like keith barnes at balmain the sydney tigers have as much right to play in the super league as any other club i can't see us being part of a second division competition uh, every kind of Sydney chief executive had, had the same thing. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, rugby league will change and there'll be fewer Sydney clubs. We're in a great position to stand alone. 
Yeah. And, and there was a, a, a hint there about the way that Sydney clubs tried to put themselves above the line with, with Keith Buns referencing the Sydney Tigers, not the Balmain Tigers. The writing's on the wall with that. Yeah. So it, it's so fun. So obviously, Canterbury became the Sydney Bulldogs, Balmain became the Sydney Tigers, and Eastern Suburbs became the Sydney City Roosters. <laughs> ridiculous. And it, it's even more ridiculous that. John Quayle and others were, were trumpeting these moves as if it was anywhere near enough. So in his annual report, uh, John Quayle said this, Balmain, the biggest move of all, an historic decision that the old foundation club would become the Sydney Tigers in 1995 and move to a new home ground, Parramatta Stadium. These are clubs acting innovatively, creatively, professionally. This whole argument about tribalism, and then you change the tribal name and you move to a different suburb. Yeah. Insane. In what what was supposed to be the Tigers' last home game at Leichhardt, uh, but as we all know, uh, it wasn't, um, Neil Cadigan was writing about the, the scene and painted a, a very sentimental view of, of the day and the occasion. So I'll, I'll just read this. An elderly man removed his corduroy cap and turned to his wife. She wiped the tear from his eye. This was an occasion when Balmain boys were allowed to cry. Uh, go, goes on and on, you know, mentions a Richard Clapton song. Uh, you know, Laurie Nichols was in there. It was a very, you know, sentimental scene. And then he closes it with, the fact that only 7,800 turned out for what should have been a special occasion was damning proof in itself. <laughs> Meanwhile, the old guy was crying about the lines for the toilets. <laughs> That's pathetic, isn't it? But that, that says it all. Like, every time we, we, we're going about this, uh, this sentimentality, which does exist, it is real, and then we look at the crowd numbers. Yeah. They're never there. Yeah. It's just a catch-22 for 100 years. Yeah, and I don't think anyone at the time, it, probably even John Quayle, just despite his you know, glowing endorsement of the move, thought that it was, it was anywhere near enough or it was a long-term solution. So Norm Tusker said, to rename all the long-standing clubs Sydney this or Sydney that really is only short-term stuff that ultimately will not solve their problems. Uh, and at this point, Balmain, and I'm, I'm not, I, I know we're going to get angry letters from... Balmain fans, this isn't singling out Balmain. There were five other clubs in the same position. But Balmain, for instance, were in a position to think long-term. They'd taken games to Melbourne. There was the the possibility of going to the Central Coast or, you know, going to Melbourne, doing something. But instead, they changed their name to the Sydney Tigers and played Parramatta. I think Balmain at that time at the Central Coast would have worked really well. Mm. I think they would have adopted. Balmain's sort of like one of those, everyone likes the, yeah, the yeah. Second, to- yeah. second team, not like Manly. No. I think it would have worked. I, I think so too. And I wonder if Balmain fans today, knowing what they had with the murder and everything else like that. We preferred it. Yeah. They also travel a bit, Balmain fans. They're quite loyal. Mm. Um, I think it would have worked really well. And so keep in mind that this was 1994. So the machinations of Super League were well and truly in place when all this was going on. And I think even you know some of the Balmains and those sorts of people who wouldn't have been contacted by Super League, presumably would have been aware that something was afoot. So it was kind of doubly imperative to act swiftly, act decisively, actually make a decision, not just a Band-Aid. Absolutely. Uh, and one of those clubs that were in a similar position, Canterbury, we, we all know that how that played out. But interestingly enough, John Singleton fairly early in the piece got clued into what was happening uh, with Super League and had been lobbying with uh, with some of the Sydney clubs to get something going in terms of like emerged Sydney team uh, and, you know, was was taking these reports to, to Peter Moore and Canterbury. But he actually had a business interest with George Piggins and Jack Gibson and he 
contacted them to try to arrange a merger discussion, but neither were interested. Jack Gibson had a great quote about it saying, it's too hard to get the blazers off those dudes. <laughs> <laughs> he was so street smart. Yeah. He was the most street smart guy in the game. Yeah. And and always the, the same way, like I mentioned Rebo, these kind of cutting like one line kind of, you know, um, succinct statements. He could really like get right to the heart of it, couldn't he? <laughs> and it's funny, I hadn't really considered that as when you think about Sydney clubs being anti-mergers, what you more often think about is just this, you know, going down with the ship kind of loyalty and, you know, I'm a South man, so that's it, it's South and nothing else. Jack Gibson's coming the perspective of maybe I'd be open to it, but I can't really deal with these other clubs that are going to be so staunch, resolute and unwilling to, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's tantamount to like organizing Afghani warlord groups. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, we need to come together, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why it, it makes it so hard to even even now to like could you realistically see a roosters south merger working no yeah and it should it should happen yeah. but it, it I, I can't <laughs> and I, that will never happen no so it's a quandary and I, I i don't know what the right solution to all this would have been in 1994 i don't know what it is now this is one of those things where there is no answer mm. like it's it's pain either way yeah but what what is clear is these half measures were never going to be enough absolutely it's <laughs> we need a decisive move either way yeah uh, but failing that, you you had the emergence of Super League. So that that's where we leave the wider Sydney landscape until picking it up uh, as we get into the war itself. It's hardly a secret to say that Super League began in Brisbane. So I think we should begin our story there. So you, you've heard us in the Birth of the Broncos episode we did touch on it. In the Arco episode we did, we touched on it. So we're going to try to not cover the same ground we have, but a little Brisbane origin story that will tell you a bit more about their place in Super League. As a metaphor for all the troubles that would be just a few years down the line, this was very telling for me. So this was uh, game one, Brisbane versus Manly, 1988. That was the game where Fatty shook Wally's foot. The, the very same, a very important occasion. So, <laughs> um, so th this is from uh, Roy Master's book, Inside Out. Anxious to have huge crowd figures for the opening round in the ARL's first 16-team se season, John Quayle had asked the chief executives of the home clubs to inflate crowd figures. Quayle has always been emeritus professor of the ARL School of Creative Crowd Counting. <laughs> As Rebo was walking to the ground announcer to give him a crowd of 20,000, he was intercepted by Ron McAuliffe, who was aware of the practice of double counting and still angry his franchise was not on the field. The old bugger actually threw a punch at me, Rebo said at the time. <laughs> That's the greatest. So Ron, Ron McAuliffe, then 70 years old and months away from his death, <laughs> is still <laughs> threatening to throw punches over, over crowd numbers. <laughs> that may be the most rugby league story of all time. <laughs> Shades of Masters rock. Yeah. So the, the Broncos were literally a problem from day one. <laughs> uh, we, we talked about the sponsorship dramas and at every stage they were doing something to thumb their noses at authority. So when they weren't allowed to announce uh, to advertise their stuff on the ground, they'd instead of going to their dressing rooms, they'd do their halftime meeting on the field, put up their you know powers bidders tent, and have the the players there to get around Good it. Lord. Uh, just all these petty kind of you know like we're going to flaunt this rule and we're going to do this and the ARL's distaste for them about swanning in to, to Phillips Street with their chest puffed out. There's merit to it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
no doubt. And this kind of stuff, this this pettiness, this arrogance, like very quickly seeped into their corporate culture. Nobody likes a big shot in rugby league. No, um, and especially the the ARL, who, as we mentioned before, were regularly threatening to kick the Broncos out of the comp. <laughs> So I'll read, I'll read this this from uh, Ken Arthurson's book. More than once, things got so bad that we toyed with the idea of ex- expelling them. Some of the things printed in the newspapers were more than hollow threats. In hindsight, we would have been a hell of a lot better if we had expelled them. <laughs> um, and, you know, he'd go on to say, you know, if they don't want to play by our rules, they can go and start their own competition. Jesus. And so John Rebo talking in 1995 about all this... Uh, called it childish, which I think is, is you know, also not without merit. He said, there wouldn't have been a year go by in the seven years I spent at the Broncos when our club wasn't threatened with expulsion. <laughs> you know, I just found that childish. Yeah, both sides have got blame. And and on the league side, I, I sympathize as a parent because to me it reads like the futile threats you make to your children <laughs> when nothing you will do will, will get them to do what you're asking them to do. <laughs> You try reasoning, you try like <laughs> you, you try all these steps, and then you just you know come up with this ridiculous statement that both parties know is completely like unenforceable. John Reeb is in a timeout, <laughs> but like the whole arrogance thing is just they shouldn't have pushed it so hard in Newcastle growing up. Like a, a common accepted excuse for for getting bashed is thinking you're good, <laughs> and like, that's basically what they were doing. They were thinking they were good. <laughs> that, that that was true in Sydney as well. I, I, I haven't, hadn't heard that expression for a number of years. But when you hit him, he thinks it's good. <laughs> like, that's basically what they were doing. Uh, Wayne Bennett, uh, always a voice of reason, but um, this kind of plants the seed as well. Maybe they said we'd be kicked out of the competition so many times that some people got to thinking that we wouldn't be part of the competition. I never had a love affair with Sydney because I think they've always had two rules, one for them and one for everyone else. Those words... Are, uh, not that there's not truth of them, but they're also a good example of the paranoia the the Broncos fostered from the start. Yeah, but like, think about it. Like, QRL was always the the redheaded uh, RL. <laughs> yeah, and Brisbane would butt up against this, you know, Sydney block time and time again. And even when it was, you know, the ARL going to be the you know controlling body, there wasn't going to be a Queensland representative on that. See, that's board. just short sighted. Yeah. And again, that was something John Rebo took to the league, not just a representative from Queensland, but having a Newcastle, Illawarra, wherever else, having someone from outside Sydney. Looking back at it like from, from where we are now and have the strength of Queensland and what they contribute to rugby league, just ignoring that one state that like was the only other state that played yeah, the game was yeah. just insane. <laughs> uh, especially when once they came in and they were financially successful and very quickly became the dominant force on the field. Yeah. How could they think that they could continue to ignore them and, uh, you know, yeah, condescend to them? Lunacy. But, but as, we, as we've said, there's two sides to this. And the way I see it is that there were two battles going on simultaneously. So one of them was the Broncos battling this old firm, jobs for the boys kind of mentality. And you can see that right from the start with, the, with Ken Arthurson favouring the Jeans Westbeard because it was linked to Ron McAuliffe and had that old QRL kind of influence. And so John Rebo coming down and coming against this old boys mentality of the league. Uh, This quote from Rebo in Mike Coleman's Super League book says a lot. At one chief executives meeting, when Canberra was at its strongest, I heard South Sydney boss Terry Parker say, how are we going to bring those blokes back to our level? 
that was the mentality. It wasn't, gee, they're good. How, how can we be as good as them? It was always, let's try to bring them back to the pack, cut them down to size. Is that the most rugby league quote yeah. of all time? <laughs> but then simultaneously, you've got the league battling the Broncos who were refusing to toe the line and not buying into the, the collectivism of rugby league culture. So Ken Arthurson said, you know, we had long before set and settled on a pool system with profits distributed equally to the clubs. The Broncos didn't want that. They wanted the bloody lot to themselves. I can see where Arthur's is coming from with that. But I mean, if you have an organization and, you, and you're running it with excellence, why would you want to prop up other duds? And this is, I almost don't want to make this argument because I, I think it's a very hack thing to say. But yeah, the Broncos were, were doing well financially and they were, you know, outstripping any other clubs, you know, merchandising sales or, you know, their financial success otherwise. But where is that without other clubs to play against? Yeah, it's the old argument. And, and it, it only goes so far when you do have so much incompetence and complacency across the league. I, I can understand that would be very frustrating to come in with a, a, a dynamic setup and a, and a new breed of thinking about the game. Well, it comes back to the, are we bringing people back to the pack or are we encouraging yeah. excellence? It's sort of, it's the old uh, ideological argument. But Rebo's comments about what, what the ARL did after Super League broke are telling as well. He said, if you looked at the ARL's first reaction to all this, it was to shore up their own clubs. They didn't go to Brisbane or Canberra or New Zealand. They took care of Sydney. Yeah, well, it's to be expected, isn't it? Yeah. So we're, we're going to go th- go through this in, in a bit more depth. But what you're having is two ways of thinking that were ultimately incompatible. And, and I think that is really the catalyst to the whole thing. But before we get into it any further, I, I want to just give a brief intro to, to John Rebo for anyone who was maybe too young to be there in the first place and or who isn't you know really well, aware of what happened. In fact, we're too young because we didn't see him play. No, yeah, exactly. And I don't know if... I, I might have known the name John Rebo from, you know... I knew it from Fatty. Yeah. That's the only place I heard it because it was the origin for too early for me. Yeah. And the, the tests were too early for me. BRL was different state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So certainly my introduction to John Rebo was the guy from Super League. Yeah. Uh, so he, you know, was had a decorated rugby league career, 82 kangaroo, nine tests for Australia, Queensland stalwart, uh, actually played for Manly. Ken Arthurson signed him from West. It's very interesting that his three Sydney clubs – Newtown, Wests, and Manly. Yeah. You know, like the two victims of rationalization and the, the ultimate poster boy from the ARL. I wonder if Arco th- like, re- um, always regretted bringing him from Wests and poaching. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like I, I think we mentioned it in our Arco history corner, but he, he was very complimentary of, of Rebo, the person and the player. So he said, Rebo blossomed as a winger. He was a beauty, big, strong, and fast. He played with considerable distinction in his two years at Manly and was an affable and popular clubman and a darn good footballer. Just a good bloke, Yeah, the sound of it. A uh, different assessment was given by Rex Mossett. So th- <laughs> th- this, was, uh, this was John Rebo talking about uh, Rex. I remember Rex Mossett once said I was a geriatric with a disease of the spine, and it motivated me so hard to prove him wrong. <laughs> Where would you, a disease of the spine. <laughs> What's he talking about? So is he saying he was too old to be playing or what does that mean? Well, I, I guess the geriatric speaks of that, but the, the disease of the spine. <laughs> it's very mossy. Uh, and so he, w- when he was in Sydney, he was actually working as a TV repossessor 
uh, in the time where you had to, I guess, make payments on your TV or something. Yeah, that for a job, geez. Yeah, so he'd go around door to door for people who weren't keeping up with their payments. He must be able to handle himself then. Well, he said that he'd, he'd knock on the door and if it was a kind of battling family that, you know, he'd, he'd let them off a bit and say, just do your best. And he'd go back to the, the company and say, oh, they weren't home. But mm. if he saw a flash car in the driveway, he'd be like, you know, pay up. <laughs> it's basically a loan charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then post-playing, he cut his teeth at the QRL, became a development officer there, uh, gradually rose through the ranks. but when And he became the Broncos' chief executive in 1988. Question, development officer, is that above marketing officer? Uh, I, I think it is. Development, to me, suggests an element of something real. <laughs> where, where marketing is, I think, the club polo. That's probably why he rose, because uh, he's actually doing something in the role. Yeah. And like, he's actually developing. <laughs> Guy's a but he was he was met with a lot of resistance in 1987 when his name was put forward as a potential chief executive. Barry Maranta, one of the the four uh, owners of the Broncos, said his in- initial reaction was no way. This is a business venture, not an old mates club. So there there was he had to actually battle the perception that he was just there as the the kind of you know the club hire, the good bloke, the the rugby league man. Yeah, right. But certainly Maranta was. Miranda said that he learnt quickly and, you know, was well prepared, willing to listen, willing to learn and rose through the ranks very quickly because of that. Well, that's been the rap on him the whole way through. Yeah. So a very capable man and one that from a very early stage was always looking to the future. And I think that was one of the key reasons he did butt up against the rugby league so often when he did go down to Sydney is that the complacency that we spoke of that had plagued the game was at odds with his perspective of where rugby league was and should be going. I always admired that looking to the future, but he looked at the future more than Nostradamus, mate. He was <laughs> look, China was a bit far. <laughs> so I, I, although I have, have a lot of issues with the vision, as we'll, we'll come to speak of it uh, in, in the months ahead, there's no doubt that he w- was a very astute rugby league thinker. Well, we go back to the Arco episode, when him and Bullfrog were the new guard... Um, taking over from Buckley and Co., he should have been the new guard. Mm. He was the new guard. Yeah. And they blocked it. Yeah. Rather than giving up the power in a uh, a blood-free handover, which yeah. they should have done. So from the Bron- the Broncos' entry put the league in a difficult position because they were built fundamentally different to what the Broncos were. So Broncos had this private ownership where profit was a concern, where every other club was about the game, the club. You know, it wasn't about profits. It wasn't about ownership. Well, we talked about last week about how the Lees Club like uh, was set up to fund the football club and they were always whining about the money and stuff. I mean, how much of this is looking after one's gravy train, you know? When you've got this not-for-profit model and everyone's got their job and you know, how hard are they working, et cetera. Well, I, th- I think that model works when it is like a part-time venture. Yeah. You know, um, at... at- Probably at the stage of incorporation, there should have been thinking about the way clubs were structured as well as the league. But this this quote from Norm Tasker in the Rugby League Week neatly sums up this conflict. The league on the one hand are trying to maintain systems of the all-for-one and one-for-all variety that always existed in the game. The Broncos, on the other hand, are ploughing boldly in the entrepreneurial world of the modern sports business. The league has a responsibility to the game as a whole. The weaker clubs, the kids in the park, the lot. The Broncos, as a private club have responsibilities to themselves, their investors, their own future. And that that's right there in the ownership structure. So how is it ever going to be 
compatible. Absolutely. Like I think it was always untenable to have a club with such a different charter than the other 15 clubs to have that work long term. Funnily enough, when there was talk of a, a Newcastle private bid in the early 90s, uh, that was basically stamped out by the league. And, and John Quayle had this quote, we rely on the public to go to our game, not to prop it up. Which, <laughs> all, right, all right, so there's a couple of things here. That's kind of the bind the league was in with their previous model. But they seem to want it both ways, you know, to have business success, but with these old time values and not having the actual structure for business success. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, the nerve of Quail about the public not propping up the game, <laughs> the game funded on pokey money. Well, it's not the public, it's just the vulnerable. <laughs> but Daryl Vanderveld, who had that uh, 1986 bid for a Brisbane team and ended up running the Crushers, he put forward an, inter- an interesting counterpoint to this idea of private ownership as the way forward talking about committees coming in and you know overpaying for players and and putting all these things in place then because of that overspending the club's going broke and then those people just walking away from the game and you saw clubs folding because of that yeah and and i guess if you look at the history history of private ownership in rugby league over the last 20 years we've definitely had some good ones and bad ones and it's a wonder a club hasn't actually gone under because of it the broncos worked because they had 20, 30,000 coming to every game because they had one team, one city for the, the, that period. It's like private ownership's not going to work for Balmain. No. <laughs> and it works for South because I think Russell Crowe's prepared to burn holes in his pockets. Although at the same time, he's, he's you know, got their memberships through the roof. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. I, I mean, it took an Oscar winner to yeah. get interested. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Nathan Tinkler, like that probably should have been the end of Newcastle, you know? I mean, if that was a Sydney club, no doubt that's the end well, of Well, I mean, that must have just been him because Newcastle is like Brisbane Junior. Mm. But yet they've always kind of struggled financially, not, yeah. not for the first time. Which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. At the height of this conflict, these two competing philosophies, uh, you know, coming into co- contact with each other, John Quayle launched an investigation into the ownership structure of the Broncos who... There were, you know, separate companies being formed and this person having 12%. And so it was all getting very murky. And so John Quayle launched an investigation just to get to the nature of the Broncos' ownership and how they were being run. And if the club grants and all that sort of stuff, where was that money going? So all these questions were legitimate questions. But uh, Tony Durkin, I I think he summed it up pretty brilliantly uh, in the Rugby League Week saying, It's curious also that that the New South Wales Rugby League would send a gang of accountants into the offices of the competition's most successful (laughs) organisation when the two other clubs which join with Brisbane, Newcastle and Gold Coast, are in financial strife. (laughs) Like, it's very true that, yes, you can be concerned about the ownership and and all the rest of it, but when that's your... When the, you know, clubs are, you know, on the breadline and you're going, hang on, why are these guys (laughs) making money? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) But it also offends me that like they're worried about the murkiness of the Broncos structure when they're taking money off these animalistic clubs. Yeah. And then where's, where's that money coming mm. from and going? Mm. So it all came to a head when John Rebo joined and was subsequently kicked off the league's premiership committee, which was the, the most important subcommittee where the future of the game was regularly discussed. So he was on the committee for a year, then kicked off in 1993. Uh, so there were competing theories as to why he got kicked off. 
One of the theories was that he was only on the board in the first place because the North's representative had been kicked off the year before <laughs> because of David Hill's ongoing battles with the league about cigarettes. <laughs> so there was the idea that they were just teaching North's a lesson by kicking them off the board. Then, you know, they'd served their time, so Rebo was gone. But there's no doubt that Rebo uh, didn't make many friends on that premiership committee. And interestingly enough, the one that pushed hardest for his removal was Peter Moore, who, um, who John Quayle and Ken Arthurson actually wanted Rebo to be kept on the board and Arco went up to Peter Moore and said, why do you want to get rid of him? We need blokes from outside. We don't want it run just by blokes from Sydney. Uh, to which Peter Moore responded, I'll tell you why. The only thing he cares about is the Broncos. Uh, so it was Bullfrog himself who largely engineered his removal from the committee. And a year later, they're, they're in bed together. So, so Bullfrog... Uh... Did he care about the dogs at all? Or? <laughs> I don't understand that. Yeah, but he had a point in that this premiership committee was supposed to be a bit more um, broad thinking than just you're a club representative, so you represent your club. Yeah. It was supposed to be a place where bigger ideas were discussed. I just find it amazing that we want a Queensland representative. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and other board members were saying that Rebo would just hack, uh, would just hijack the agenda of every meeting and it was just Broncos, Broncos, Broncos and anything that wasn't going their way, he wasn't responsive to. So anything about the crushes he was against and it, it was hard to get that broader focus when he was so club-centric. Do you want club representatives looking after the game? I just, I just have the game run it. Like, uh, Yeah, but again, it, it's this murky territory where that's how it was always done and anything to do with the, the growth, the future of the game was coming from the clubs and this idea of collectivism, which we've seen didn't really work t too well because you always had these blocks, you always had these cartels, you always had the haves and the have-nots. Mm. It's a wonder anything ever got done. Yeah. The classic rugby league quote about uh, John Rebo on the Premiership Committee. Uh, this was Peter Harrison who was, on, who was on that committee. He did not come to that committee with an open mind. His was a siege mentality. <laughs> but I think John Rebo argues that he, he didn't have a Brisbane-centric focus. He actually had greater ideas for the game that just happened to involve Brisbane as one of the key cities in rugby league. And I, I can see where his ideas that were about the future of rugby league might've been thought of as all about Brisbane coming from the, the Sydney, you know, traditional kind of thing. It's like any business and any power struggle, the young come in with fresh ideas that the old don't like it. And the young think the old are dumb and the old think the young have no experience. Mm. It's just, just the cycle of life. Yeah. But regardless of, what went on in that boardroom, him getting kicked off the committee was a, a deep personal wound and something that escalated the process of, of moving towards uh, what eventuated with Super League. I mean, if they just finessed this adversarial relationship a bit better, a lot of this could have been avoided. It's so funny that we're talking about all these millions of dollars and different competitions and media groups and, and all the rest of it. When so much of it does come down to just these personal relationships. Yeah, yeah. But there were a lot of other things for the Broncos to be angry about. One of them was uh, the salary cap, which had become a, a real issue in rugby league in the mid-90s. And again, competing philosophies as to its worth, whether it was providing this level playing field or was actually a restraint of trade. Uh, on that restraint of trade issue, we should shout out longtime antagonist of the show, Carl Gutasi, <laughs> who's actually been quite pleasant to us lately, so I'm worried we're doing something wrong. 
But uh, he, as a lawyer, informed us that the US case, which we spoke about, there's actually a, a legal exemption in place where leagues are allowed to operate with salary caps and other things, which are actual restraints of trade. Yeah, interesting corporate law insight there from Kyle. Appreciate it. So you did have the Broncos coming in and the salary cap at that point in 94 was $1.6 million. They could obviously spend much more than that. And we're thinking, well, why should we be held back? Whereas other clubs that would struggle to spend that much needed in place to survive. This is a quote from Bob Millwood of Illawarra. The salary cap is not the perfect system, but it's kept a lot of clubs buoyant. Like I, I understand the, the need from it of a level playing field aspect, but when it's keeping your club buoyant, that's when it starts to become like an issue in my book that it's there to save clubs from themselves, but don't they need to be operating with some level of competence? Well, I wanted to bring this up with you. Uh, we've discussed this cap on this show, the old incarnation of the show, and a new one, at length. In the NBA, they've got a you must spend 90% of the cap rule. Yeah. Which I think would be very helpful for the NRL. I, I think there is like a floor in place for the NRL's cap. I'd like to get a higher floor yeah, and, yeah. and really weed out who can't operate because yeah. uh, that's a good system, I mm. think. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, there's also the luxury tax we've also discussed at length that maybe we could sort of reward people with that can afford it, a type of thing, and invest in the game. But There's a lot of merit in all of that, but I think part of it comes down to the next part of this discussion, the next part of what was going in the 90s, where the league was coming up with this point system as opposed to a straight cash figure. It was an evaluation thing, so players were assigned a certain number of points and a, and a a corresponding salary, you know, so it was 150,000 for established test players, 130 fringe test players, 110 state of origin, you know, on and on and on. So when they say established, does that exclude one test wonders? And yeah, one? yeah. Well, I, I don't know how they were deciding <laughs> on, on that criteria. But so putting all these different, a, a system in place and, you know, there were talks of exemptions for long-serving players, juniors, all the rest of it. Well, see, that, that immediately creates distaste in my mouth as a rugby league guy and across rugby league, I'd imagine. Rugby league is a straight cash figure business, but that works well in the NBA. They have you make the all NBA team, you get the super max, yeah, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I, I think the issue with rugby league and salary cap is history shows that any attempts to convolute it, yep. it, it just all falls apart. It just comes down to the rugby league mentality. No one wants to be told what to do. Yeah, It's like, you're telling me what to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was one of the, the, the key sources of tension from the Broncos and also the Raiders in 1994. So both, both clubs said that they weren't opposed to the salary cap. They wanted these you know, junior exemptions, long-serving player exemptions, weren't getting it from the league and were you know, planning to... you know go nuclear about it so you know wayne bennett said in seven years we haven't heard another club we're trying to be responsible we don't want to poach from others and while ever our own players are aiming up we have to stick with them and then saying you know the broncos going on to say well maybe we won't worry so much about junior development maybe we'll just start you know poaching other clubs <laughs> another players. empty threat yeah rugby league administrators on their deathbed their last words will be he was a local junior <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and some some astounding alarmism from both Broncos and uh, Raiders officials in 1994 about these mooter changes to the salary cap. John Rebo saying that these changes would put the Broncos on death row. <laughs> Kevin Neal at the at the at the Raiders saying that he was concerned proposed changes to the salary cap could send the Raiders broke. <laughs> and uh, and Glenn Lazarus inadvertently 
providing an argument for the salary cap by saying, I have a real fear that at my age, the Broncos will be forced to let me go at the end of next season. Who would pay big money for a 30-year-old prop with maybe one good year left? And even if I do get a deal, there's a fair chance I'd end up with a club I don't want to play for in a city or suburb I don't want to live in. <laughs> Which, like, I used to... I, 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 with the salary cap, I was always like, long-serving players need to be, you know, get a full discount. Like, you know, the point of the salary cap isn't to push 30-year-old players around the league. Now I'm like, oh, it kind of is. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it will get the best of you and then you can get a, you know, get a nice payday somewhere and we can focus on the future. But so 1994 was, it was looking like the salary cap was done. You know, I think John Quayle had got so sick of it being ignored, so sick of any changes to it being, you know, shouted down and all the controversy around the salary cap, it was becoming an unenforceable kind of situation what would have happened if it simply didn't happen it just would have just been the haves and the have-nots well there was there was talk of all of this in the air that the salary cap would be scrapped and it was basically keep up or fall away well, it, might, it might have done simply for us and so keep in mind that 1995 was the year that the four new clubs came in and the league at that point before super league had said that they'd give the 20 team format two years to settle in at the same time, you're talking about the eradication of a salary cap. So that two years of settling in may well have been two years of, you know, what we've talked about in the past as being the nuclear option, just open slather and any club that can't keep up is gone. We, we know what would have happened. I mean, this is rugby league. One season of blowout scores. They were, we need a salary cap. Back yeah. to- <laughs> and could the ARL really have been trusted not to issue, you know, last minute, one-time-only rescue packages, stays of execution, all the rest of it. But I think there is a very good chance that had Super League not come around, we would have gone no salary cap in 1995 or, you know, 1996, and we might have seen a a different way out of of what went down. I'd like to hear some of our um, administrative Twitter followers and listeners weighing in on this. We have a few of those now. It'd be Mm. good to see what the inside gossip was on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in general, any inside goss you, you can give us, please, you know, the rugby league digest at gmail.com. But one of the, the final nails in the coffin for launching Super League was the fallout between the Broncos and the league about uh, the Broncos' home venue, ANZ Stadium. So they'd moved there in 1992, leaving Lang Park uh, after striking a deal with the Brisbane City Council to refurbish, increase the ground capacity, uh, and make ANZ Stadium, the, the future home of, of Brisbane Rugby League. Can I just say I hated that stadium with a passion? Yeah, um, I, I did too. But but if anything, it, it forced Lang Park or you know now Suncorp to, to keep up. Yeah. I, I can see where the Broncos were coming from in wanting to get away from Lang Park. This statement from Paul Morgan being illustrative. Maybe it's Mr. McDonald who's out of touch with what the fans want. Next Monday night, I suggest he gets out of his plush seat in the new $27 million grandstand at Lang Park and talk to the fans in the outer, the fans who will be sitting on the same dirt seats that were there in 1957. And while he's out there, he might like to ask the women what they think of the toilet facilities in the outer. <laughs> when did the QRL ever take on the Lang Park Trust on behalf of the spectators? Very good. So I think, you know, we've talked about the the squabbles with the Lang Park Trust from day one. I think the Broncos, the very instant they were able to, they wanted to get themselves away yeah. from that old Queensland uh, mentality that you know the old boys faction and so in this dispute you had uh, Ken Arthurson call 
Jim Sawley, the Lord Mayor of Brisbane, the Mayor of Gooseville, <laughs> which, which he was saying just in reference to this dispute and the stadium thing. But wouldn't you realise that you're effectively calling the city of Brisbane Gooseville? <laughs> Like it's it's not the best way to refute suggestions of Sydney bias. Now, that sounds like you know Seinfeld with the jerk store. Like, <laughs> is is that a Seinfeld influenced insult? I, I actually think it's a great quote, but Gooseville. <laughs> the Lord Mayor of Gooseville. <laughs> in, 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 like, in that era of bloke, goose is like a really <laughs> harsh insult. You know? So. This stadium dispute is the source of the episode of this title, Aren't You Blokes Interested in Finance? <laughs> uh, and, and that is what uh, John Rebo said to John Quayle about the possibility of taking a grand final to Queensland, which they wanted to do for 1995. So, Paul, again, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it to Paul Morgan, who announced this plan for a, what they were considering a, a $30 million turnover event, saying, we would make it a week-long event like the Super Bowl in the U.S., We'd have a race meeting, balls, a concert, make it like the Melbourne Cup Carnival or Formula One Grand Prix. People would come from all over the country in New Zealand. And they were so confident that they guaranteed the, the league at $2.6 million, which was over a million dollars more than what the Sydney Grand Final was going to bring in for them. So where the Broncos were coming from in, in their mindset was, well, that's it, game, set, match. We're offering them more money. Hence, give it to us, the Grand Final will be in Brisbane. Uh, and they were butting up against rugby league tradition saying, well, no, it's not going to be in Brisbane, it's in Sydney. Uh, and this is where I do sympathise with the league. I'm, I'm not saying Sydney has a God-given right to every grand final. Well, just out of interest, we're recording this in 2019 and the grand final is going to be at the SCG. Which ludicrous, you know. <laughs> As opposed it, to Suncorp. <laughs> and I understand that there's this, you know, 25-year deal or whatever it is to play the grand final in Sydney. But if you don't have a venue in Sydney that can host that grand final, well, take it to the best rugby league stadium in the world for a couple of years. The you know? more things change than what I stay yeah. the same. So again, it's a both sides thing. I, I actually like the, you know, it's like no one, everyone accepts that the AFL grand finals in Melbourne. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the rugby league grand final is in Sydney. But it's a different landscape. Like Brisbane has the better rugby league people. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a fact. So, and and again, I, I don't think Sydney has a God-given right to host the Rugby League Grand Final. So I can I can see both sides of that argument. Let me ask you this question. Does this once and for all confirm these blokes aren't interested in finance? <laughs> I think it does. But So that there was more to this story with Quayle and Rebo actually almost coming to blows <laughs> over it. Ken Arthurson, you know, heard the commotion, had to come out of his office and, and separate the two of them. I mean, how old was um, Quayle then? 60? Uh, yeah, he'd be around that, yeah. No, not, maybe not quite. How hard were these guys yeah. <laughs> punching on in their <laughs> Um And that led to... So, obviously, Super League was in the works by that point and word had got out to the ARL. And at this point, Quayle actually explicitly put the question to Rebo, you know, what's going on? What are you likes doing? And, you know... I don't think any anything was disclosed, but so this tension had really reached boiling point. So that was the first confrontation. I, I he think that head head. yeah, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. historic. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, so it, it was about this stadium thing. That was probably the tipping point. You know, all these things were leading up to it, and I don't think the stadium thing in itself would would have made the Broncos go, "All right, we'll stuff you. We're starting our own league," but. 
this is where the tension culminated into something that was going to be untenable. Uh, and again, with another cutting quote from John Rebo in uh, Roy Masters' book, Inside Out, when has rugby league ever made a hard decision? That was the occasion which finally made up my mind about Super League. I was so angry that day, I almost hit him. I thought that if he could upset me that much, I had to get out. <laughs> That's a good reason to start the entire break low competition. You wanted to hit a bloke. So all this stuff was happening behind the scenes in the boardroom. You know, the Broncos board talking to each other, formulating plans. The league, you know, doubling down on their, you know, distaste for the Broncos. But 1994, you also see it spill on field. So there was a, a year-long war raging between the Broncos and referees and the judiciary with a, a feeling that they were being targeted or, you know, singled out. So Paul Morgan's quote of, of the time was, was typical. The year of 1994, when they just bloody bludgeoned us out of the competition with suspensions, was when we knew. The thing about Arthurson and Quayle was we knew they were going to give it to us in the end. <laughs> oh, God. One of the most highly publicized issues was Alan Langer's tackling style. I have a specific memory of this, sitting with my late uncle Mick and uh, my nan in a little fibro house watching it and him tripping a guy, right? <laughs> my uncle Mick going, that's a bloody trip! <laughs> in between drum and cigarettes. Huh? And, um... Calling it a cumble and throw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just sticking your leg out and like, it was the dirtiest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's so funny that you mentioned that because that was the official party line, you know, going like, oh, no one ever had a problem with Ray Price and the cumble and throw. Well, Ray Price was doing it when they were both stationary yeah, yeah. and Alf was doing it when a guy was running <laughs> past him at 30Ks an hour. Exactly. And everyone in the game knew that. I, I knew that then at age, <laughs> you know, 13 or whatever that like, I don't think you're supposed to tackle like that. <laughs> I just remember my uncle Mick jumping up and like being just disgusted. Yeah, but but the height of the Broncos to make this the hill they were going to die on, <laughs> uh, and so this this came on the back of a, a number of Broncos suspensions throughout the year. Steve Renoff, Gavin Allen, Alan Can, Kevin Walters, Steve Renoff again, and each time it happened, it was met with this outcry from Brisbane administrators and uh, eventually players itself. Uh, just uh, on Steve Renoff in his book, I, I love, uh, I love his his worldview uh, and the way he speaks. He was talking about being at the judiciary. You're in there. You're in your best clobber. You feel like a criminal. You're in there for an incident on a footy field, and you feel like you're in a proper court of law. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, showing a. a, a rudimentary at best understanding of that legal system he said when he was asked what have you got to say steve he looked straight at the panel watching that i feel sick he admitted that was it he was suspended for two weeks i just blew it there and then i virtually told them how bad it looked <laughs> he needed a um, representative there <laughs> a mouthpiece if you will uh and and so that that paranoia kept on playing out throughout the year and, and Kerrod Walters in particular. So he was cited and ultimately suspended uh, and came out and said this, there's so much prejudice against the Broncos. All you want is a fair go, but the majority of players who go to the judiciary seem to be guilty until proven innocent. I'm going to expose myself as a low-class human being here, but in the professional wrestling business, <laughs> there is a uh, saying that you work yourself into a shoot. Yeah. As in like the storyline ends up becoming real once you keep perpetuating it. Yeah. And that's what they've done here. Yeah, exactly. And and a later situation that year, 
Alan Langer was actually sin binned in, in a match refereed by Graham Annesley for comments he made, which haven't come out, but would have been something along the lines of, you're you know, cheat. you're a cheat, something like that. And that was when even the Broncos management realized that things had got out of hand. You know, Wayne Bennett had a chat with Alan Langer and said he'd never been more disappointed in him. Uh, and, and I think at that point, you know, they tried to tone things down on the field. But like that came from the top. And when it's so deep-seated in the organization, it's only a matter of time before that becomes like the public story. It's just incredible how these like, it starts off so petty and ends up in absolute yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pandemonium. You know, so like, like just listen to a quote like this. All we're trying to do is promote rugby league and league is thriving in the area today. Which brings me to the question, is it jealousy? Are clubs jealous of the way we run our football club? Are they jealous that we have no scandal in our football club? Are they jealous that we've had no misadministration in our leagues club and that our profits continue to soar? To hell with a lot of them. We feel we're an ornament to the game. And for the life of me, I don't know why so many of the league hierarchy are crooked on us. Uh, that quote actually came uh, in 1971. Ken Arthurson talking about uh, the, the rest of the league. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's funny that it, it all comes around, doesn't it? It's just the age-old power struggle. Yeah. When you break it down. And that paranoia went even further and became public and going as far as the fans who uh, the Sunday Mail in Brisbane sent out the, the league like address or phone number or something and invited fans to <laughs> voice their displeasure. Uh, we, we'll get to the, some of the reasons behind that a, a bit later. But Quayle said, said of it, it's an insult to me, but I'm the face of the league and that's part of the job. But I would not expect any prominent sporting organisation to be subject to the foul, indecent language that my staff have had to handle. Uh, and at, Ken Arthurson saying that, that he feared for his safety when at Suncorp, Suncorp Stadium because of all the abuse he was Jesus. copying. As I did in the preparation for this show, I you know basically read all you know rugby league coverage in 1994 and just reading it, it was ugly. Like the way it had spilled into the press, the way every week was some new drama, some accusation from the Broncos that they were being targeted and, you know, the league was trying to get rid of them. It's so funny. I don't remember any of that. No, I don't, I don't either. I just but... remember Canberra, you know, yeah. what a great season. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the flip side to what we were talking about, about, you know, how great rugby league was in 1994. There was definitely all this stuff going on. And if you were actually reading and looking for it, yeah. it was all there. I mentioned the Sunday Mail putting it out to the fans to, to get get at the league. That becomes a complicated issue when you realize that in 1994, News Limited actually became sponsors of the Broncos through their subsidiary Queensland newspapers, which operated the Courier Mail and the, you know, the Sunday Mail. That's where we start getting in the murky territories. Yeah. So even to this day, the you know, it's... What, what do they call it? The Broncos Mail or something. It's, you know, <laughs> it's long been the... You know, well, the same as the Newcastle Herald with the yeah. Knights. <laughs> if, if a Newcastle player like punches a caveat, it's like caveat headbutts the Knights <laughs> player's fists. <laughs> so this relationship between news and the Broncos becoming formalized in 1994, that can't be overstated in terms of how much it planted the seed and made all corresponding events possible. So it actually all came together at a cocktail party in 1993, uh, attended by both Paul Morgan and Rupert Murdoch. And so at that point, the Broncos were about to take on Air New Zealand as um, their, their sponsor for 1994. Uh, and as Paul Morgan puts it, he went up to Rupert Murdoch and said, listen, Rupert, we're about to sign a sponsorship deal with Air New Zealand. 
we'll bugger that. You're a great Australian organization. So are we. We should be doing business together, uh, paving the way for, I think, the greatest Broncos jer- jerseys, the Travelland diamond jerseys. So <laughs> Travelland came on board and, and Queensland newspapers. And in that, they had a different type of sponsor. They had, you know, a sponsor with a global reach who wasn't doing it for the for the, you know, the good seats and, you know, just to be part of the experience. Mm. They were doing it because they wanted a stake in the game. And as owners of Sports Australia who distributed the league's merchandise, they could see that the Broncos were far and away the, the most popular team. And that sponsorship eventually became part ownership when they took a stake in one of the companies involved in owning Brisbane. So I know it changed from Super League, but that was a different situation. Like there's no other club in the league at that point that news would have even thought about taking a stake in. Well, there's no other club making money. Was yeah. there? <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, you also saw the introduction of Lachlan Murdoch to the story. So he uh, was 23 and he was, you know, handed the job of running Queensland newspapers on merit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he he got he got a couple of high distinctions in some of his essays, and and Rupert thought that you know he had he had the runs on the board, uh, and he became good friends with some of the Broncos players. He you know met some of them at some news do, and then ended up going to a party at Chris Johns's house, and <laughs> um, and you know had had a great day with the boys. The um that's how Chris Johns got in there, is it socially? Yeah, I think so. Mm. But it <laughs> it's so funny because we'll see in 1995. James Packer taking on much of the, you know, the, the day-to-day coalface action for the Packer side of things. It, it's kind of, a, it, it shows where rugby league is at that like, yes, we've got these global titans, you know, doing battle over ownership, but they both send their sons in to do the work. <laughs> so this this sponsorship actually had a big effect on the other side of things because 1995 was going to be the last year of the Winfield Cup as the ban on cigarette sponsorship in sports came into force. In 1994, the ARL was deep in negotiations with News Limited through ANSET for ANSET to take over that sponsorship uh, after Winfield were out. And so the Broncos getting in first was a sign of which way the wind was blowing and gave the ARL cause to question everything that was going on behind the scenes. So one of their board members, Graham Lovett, who was on that initial nine-man board in 1983. He he was the boss of Sports Australia, that merchandising company, who was the key contact with news in making that ANSET sponsorship deal official. And so he was he was actually getting it from both sides. With Once ANSET pulled out of the ARL deal, there were a lot of questions asked about Graham Lovett and, and his role in it and whether he was just fishing for information from the ARL and that sponsorship deal was never really God, on the table. It's like Cold War espionage. Which, uh, to be fair to Graham Lovett, he was also copying it from the news side who thought that he was working too hard to get a deal in the ARL's favour. <laughs> Poor bugger. So uh, I don't know the truth of it, but it, it, it all... Again, murky is the the you know the dominant <laughs> word of this episode. But... Can I just say what a great rugby league name that is? Graham Lovett <laughs> uh, and Ken Cowley, who uh, was speaking a... of great names, <laughs> <laughs> a news executive that we'll hear a lot more about as the season progresses. But Roy Masters had a great quote in his book about Ken Cowley and how Super League all got started. Ask him how Super League started, and he explains that he decided it would be cheaper to start his own elite competition rather than replace Winfield as the ARL's naming rights sponsor. So that is a 
key step in everything that happened in 1995, and that was late 1994. That was one of the worst budgeting errors of all time. How much would a sponsorship be worth? Three million? <laughs> what, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he definitely miscalculated that. <laughs> I think he would have been interviewed by Masters in 95, so I don't think he knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. So that, that was late in 1994 where that all fell apart and the ARL had to look elsewhere for their sponsorship. But it was a year before that when everything really got moving with Paul Morgan talking to Ken Cowley informally about the possibility of a breakaway. And that became informal for the next few months until in April 1994 when John Rebo actually formally put a proposition to Cowley. Rebo knew that those blokes were interested in finance. That's one thing he knew. Uh, and the funny thing about that is that from the start, pay TV was a big consideration. So in that initial 1994 proposal, one of the pitches was they knew that pay TV was coming and that news would be involved. And Paul Morgan said that he could get his hands on a lot of sport product. And Ken Cowley was like, yep, well, that, that sounds pretty good. And it all kind of started to go from there. What did Morgan mean by that? Like, what were other products? Well, Morgan owned, like, I think the Brisbane Bullets or something. Like, he, like, had his fingers in a lot of pies in terms of sport. Yeah, but that, that doesn't give you the, the rights to the games. It doesn't give you the rights, but it gives you a, a seat at the table, yeah. I guess. So at that point, Wayne Bennett got involved and, and he he was on the board and, and, you know, was kept like in the loop like from the start. So early 1994, it was all in the works and, and that was happening behind the scenes. Trying to get an, an exact time frame on when different people in the game knew, that remains to this day a kind of difficult uh, thing to establish. But certainly Broncos players knew about Super League uh, no later than May 1994. So... Uh, Steve Renoff in his book said that they were in Wollongong for a game against Illawarra when John Rebo came to their hotel and talked about what they would think if hypothetically another competition was set up with players getting more money and uh, you, you know even putting some figures about you know you'd be worth this much you'd be worth this much and so on. So they gradually, as the year progressed, started putting the feelers out. By no later than July 1994, other clubs had also been informed with Auckland and Canterbury in the news as having known about the proposal at that point. Bullfrog knew then. Well, we, we're going to save Bullfrog talk because there's a lot of debate about what he did and didn't knew. And in fact, we've got a whole episode coming on that topic. Yeah, we'll save it then. But I mean, I'm going to say right now that he knew. <laughs> <laughs> so... so Getting the word out to the press, the first actual press report that there was something happening came in the Rugby League Week in March 1994. Uh, this was in a Tony Durkin column where he said, a breakaway rugby league competition similar to World Series cricket and conducted along the lines of, of the NBA in America has been mooted as the relations between the New South Wales Rugby League and the Broncos deteriorate. So uh, very telling that it was Tony Durkin who was the first to, yeah, to yeah. mention it. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he was basically the the Queensland guy in Rugby League Week in that era. Any Queensland story was coming from him. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember Super League? Uh, how did that compare to the NBA? <laughs> to you? <laughs> uh, and so the first links explicitly tying the breakaway competition to News Limited came in July of 1994 in the Sun-Herald in a Gladys Craven column. Uh, and again, it explicitly links Rupert Murdoch and cable TV 
to the proposal. But again, when you're reading about Super League in 1994, you're getting these breadcrumbs thrown out. So this is a column late in 1994 in a Sherlock column in Rugby League Week. Trying to uncover anything concrete on the much-discussed Super League is vastly more difficult than finding Lasseter's Lost Reef. My extensive spy network, however, assures me that there's some fire blazing behind the smoke. Wow. So that's kind of the way you're seeing it being talked about. Like if you, as I did going through 25 years later, looking for like any kind of comment about it, you're getting this like this one throwaway line in a bigger article or like this one, you know, three line little piece on it. But I remember reading it and then throwing it away. Yeah. This is all rubbish. Mm. And funnily enough, that's what the Australian Rugby League were essentially doing about the Super League reports in 1994. So in July, when... It, it became public that something was happening and there was fire to the smoke and, and definitely something to worry about. The ARL kind of sat on their hands for a few more months and, you know, stayed with this, you know, nothing will happen kind of mentality. It's weird considering that they demonised the Broncos as being so evil, but they just ignored the threat. Mm. And as late as the, the 1994 annual report, John Quayle had this to say, Late in the season, the media carried occasional stories on rumours of a breakaway Super League competition. The stories had a shared quality. They were strong on whisper and innuendo, thin on detail. In one way, the stories were a great tribute to what rugby league has become. The people outside the game may see our game in the 1990s as an enormously appealing and attractive product. We'll continue to plan expertly and professionally for the game's future, as we have done throughout these recent exciting seasons. We see the immediate future as expansion to the year 2000. Then there is no doubt rationalisation will take place. If a Super League should happen, and one day it will, it should come under the banner of the New South Wales Rugby League. More talk of the future rationalisation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When it's on your doorstep and you're you know, talking about this far-off year 2000 rationalisation. Uh, <laughs> the theme song shouldn't have been simply the best. It should have been, tomorrow, tomorrow. <laughs> so that's where we leave the story. And our next episode, we'll pick it up at a point when the ARL had no choice but to take it seriously when it went public on the Kangaroo Tour that it was on. That's when it rocked my world. Yeah, likewise. So that is where we'll pick the story up next time. Uh, I I should add there will be a little delay on this. We're taking a two-week hiatus. I I hope it's clear to anyone listening that a lot of work goes into this show. Uh, And it's at the point where I need to take a little break from actually putting out shows or the quality will suffer. And it's more important to us to get it right. I'd like to point out there's a lot of work on one side of the uh, <laughs> duo. So I've uh, got about half a million words of research notes that I've got to put together uh, that I'm, I'm quite a way through, but I, I need two weeks to, to get the final touches on that. How dare you? So we won't be gone for long. Uh, I, I apologize that right when we're getting to Super League, we're taking <laughs> this break. But as I said, it's only two weeks. We will be back with an all-new episode after that. Uh, in the meantime... As always, uh, please send us your thoughts to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. Great if, feedback on the episode so far. Uh, it's, it's been really amazing. I'm, I'm loving all the stories. I'm, I'm loving all your kind words, so, so please keep them coming. Uh, let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, tell your friends, please. Well, you know what, Michael? The two weeks are going to help me because I'm already feeling anxious about it. Like <laughs> This episode's like just the acrimony in the air. It's palpable. Yeah, so strap yourselves in because it, it, it gets uh, pretty ugly from here. <laughs> <laughs> As always, to close out the show, I'm going to give my book plug of the week. Uh, and this week, I'm going to go with that one that I mentioned uh, probably more than any other source this week, which was Roy Masters' 
1996 book, Inside Out. Great book. So unlike Mike Coleman's Super League book, which takes a more overarching view over everything that was happening, Inside Out focuses on a few key operators and gives them a chapter. So there's a chapter on Rebo. There's a chapter on Quail. There's a chapter on Bob Fulton. There's, uh, you know, Tim Sheens, Brad Fittler. Uh, and really insightful, important book on the Super League drama. So track that down. It can be found in all good libraries and Warren Ryan's fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on that note, we'll get out of here. Thanks for listening and I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We'll speak to you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.